Our scriptures, John chapter 8, 1 through 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. This is God's word. You may be seated. Happy New Year. What I, what I love most about January 1st on a Sunday morning is that you get a clear picture of who are the sheep and who are the goats. So y'all are sheep. Your election is sure. You're here on, on January 1st. And we're in between series right now. We finished our Advent series. And we're right one week that we have in between preaching series, and so I have a rare opportunity to say whatever I want. (laughs) And so several weeks ago, in my morning time in the Word, I was reading through John. I came to John 8, and I read this passage, and God's Spirit's just like, ding, 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 ding. That's the way we need to start out the new year as our church. I'm calling this sermon, Living Out 2017, Fueled by Jesus' Mercy. As we set our sights on the kind of people that we intend to be this year for the next 12 months, we're, we've, we've already got our gears turning. What, what kind of man, what kind of woman do I want to be this year? What changes need to be made? We should start by setting our sight on the kind of Savior Jesus was for this woman. What kind of mercy he has shown us. And then finally, we'll look at with, with our sin-stained slate wiped clean, we can ask the question, what would go and sin no more look like for you and I? So right off the bat though, first of all, you may have noticed that this text in your Bible is kind of bracketed off with a note maybe. And it says that the note might say something to the effect that this story isn't found in the Greek scrolls that date back the farthest meaning it must have been patched in later, meaning John didn't write it, meaning it's not the inspired word of God. Now, that's true. Just about all discerning scholars agree that this isn't John's writing. It's, it's not even his vocabulary. 
which puts my sermon off to a wonderful start right out the gate. But those same scholars also pretty much agree that this is not fiction. That this event, this interaction with this woman and the Pharisees, it really happened in Jesus' earthly ministry. Because we see even as early as the 100s AD, just, you know, decades after the event, Christian writers are quoting it as if it's common knowledge, just referring to that story. Every, all the saints knew about that time that the adulteress was brought before Jesus, go and sin no more, the whole shebang. We Christians should cherish that through whatever historical happenstance, this story, this precious story was preserved for us. John Calvin said, it contains nothing unworthy of the apostolic spirit. There's no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. That's what we'll do this morning. But if this puts a little bit of a wobble on your faith, your belief in the reliability of this book, and you're like, whoa, this was added, this isn't the word of God, but it's in the word of God, what is it? What does it mean? Or if you're a skeptic and you're just like, I knew it. I've been telling you, this book was just patched together over centuries by power-hungry kings and popes and having councils and taking this in, throwing that out. I encourage you to dig into just some degree of personal research on this and, and just look at the, the number of Greek manuscripts, the dating of them especially when compared with any other book in the history of planet Earth. And then when your eyeballs get popped back into your socket, you can rest assured that we do hold the very words of God in our hands this morning. One last sentence. Here's someone smarter than me. I'll I'll, I'll bring in the big guns. R.C. Sproul says, with respect to the main substance of Scripture, more than 99% is in agreement in all of the families of the copies. It is in less than 1% of the texts of the Bible that variant readings are found. No major doctrine of the Christian church is affected by those variant readings. So class dismissed, we're, and that, that's all we get to say about, about that issue. This, within this story now, The context of the whole situation is that the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. And that says right in verse 6, they're like trying, this whole scenario is to trap Jesus. He's getting very popular. There's a buzz around town. Some of the leaders, of the religious leaders, think that he's genuinely leading God's people astray as a false prophet. Others think he's just going to cause a revolt. He's going to mess up this cozy situation that we have with Rome right now. They allow us a lot of freedom to carry on our sacrifices, and they could come in and red light this whole production, and we're out of a job we're, or, or dead. So others are simply jealous that the people are hanging on every word this, this man from Nazareth every word he says the way that they used to hang on every word the Pharisees said and put them on a pedestal as the most holy closest to God and so their clever trap is this Rome doesn't want us executing anybody without going through the Roman courts we don't get capital punishment as as, um, subjugated under Rome but if we could scrounge up someone 
who's committed a, a moral sin, they're obviously guilty. We'll catch them in the act. And the law of Moses says that it warrants the death penalty. Okay? Then in front of everyone, we ask Jesus, what do you think? Should we side with the law of the one true God or the law of Rome, Jesus? And we can instantly turn either the people against him or the empire against him. If he says, no, don't kill her, we turn around to the people and we say, see, I told you, he's coming in, he's trying to change the clear law of God that's been passed down through centuries from Moses. So stop saying that Jesus of Nazareth is sent from God. But if he says, yes, she deserves to die, and the mob carries out Jesus' wishes as they're hanging on his every word, oh, hey, Herod, We've got a rebel here that seems to not recognize that only Rome has authority to execute criminals. And oh, how sweet of an example they will make of him then. So, their henchmen pound the pavement and they're going to find who's sleeping with whom in Jerusalem tonight. And in the morning, when Jesus gets to the bustling temple courtyard, they make their move and they parade her in. Oh, Jesus, so glad you're here. Uh, we were wondering, we're not sure what we should do. The law of Moses says an adulteress like her should be stoned to death. What do you think? Obey God's law or not? The stakes are huge. They've got him in checkmate. Which noose will he choose to hang himself with? And then he stoops down and he starts drawing in the sand with his finger. Some manuscripts even add the phrase, as though he didn't hear them. And this just confounds them. What is he doing? And it's a haunting question for us. What is he doing? What is he writing in the dirt? There's a lot of theories I've read. One is is that he, some say that each man was seeing Jesus listing out his own sins in front of everyone. And this is, this idea is from Jeremiah 13, sorry, 17, 13. It says, all who abandon you will be put to shame. All who turn away from me will be written in the dirt, for they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. There's a few other theories, but personally, I think he may have just been doodling happy little trees or a running back's uh, formation in a, in a play. The point is that he's clearly disinterested. This is a posture of just casual disinterest. Like this whole charade is just pointless. Like this song and dance is just the most uninteresting thing imaginable. But they keep badgering him about it. And after a moment, he finally stands back up. Oh, y'all are still here. Should, do I think she should be stoned? How about the guy that's not just as guilty of breaking God's law as she is? Throw the first rock. And then he bends back down and starts to draw up a play for fourth and one. He's straight toying with them. He knows they don't care about this woman. She's a tool that they can use to trap Jesus. So he responds to the main matter at hand, which was never her adultery. Jesus sees the issue being pressed on him, 
is their manifest hypocrisy. And so did you catch that in his response, he affirms, yes, she should die violently for her sins, but he denies them their place as upright judges of her guilt because they too are blatant lawbreakers and hypocrites. For instance, their precious law says that the man and woman caught in adultery should both be killed. doesn't say stoned, they added that. But where's the man? It's not that far of a leap to guess that he was a good old boy. He was on the inside track and he was probably a big tither to the synagogue. He's nowhere to be found. So the law of Moses was only as good to them as a tool they could use to cut others down and manipulate righteousness, bend it for their favor. And Jesus says to that system, well, someone innocent should cast the first stone at the guilty. Any takers? And one by one, they drop their rocks, starting with the oldest. It makes a lot of sense to me. I would be a lot quicker today to drop my rock of condemnation than I would have been 10 years ago when I had it all figured out. So it makes more sense. The more you've lived, the, more you're slow, the slower you are to, to um, issue condemning thoughts or actions toward others. And as Jesus continues, he bends back down, and as Jesus continues to doodle, the froth of the mob fizzles out, and we're finally at this moment that was so compelling to me, and I wanted to preach it today. This quiet moment where she stands there possibly covered in just a bed sheet. So ashamed, so relieved, feeling all the feels. And she's alone with this man, scratching something in the dirt. It's kind of absurd. And she's maybe picturing this gruesome death that she should be experiencing right now, where her hands are tied back and Jagged rocks are hurled at her face until they cause enough brain damage that she expires. And whether she realizes it or not, she's standing before the only one in the crowd with every right to pick up those dropped rocks and kill her himself, and he would be nothing but just and good. But the one without sin wouldn't cast the first stone. Jesus said, let the one without sin cast the first stone. That's him. That's Jesus. And here, in this deafening silence, Jesus gathers himself up and claps away the dirt and looks around and says, where did everybody go? Is nobody condemning you? And then we hear her muster the only three syllables in this whole story. No one, Lord. And then Jesus opens his lips with the sweetest words that any of us could ever hear spoken over the shame and self-hatred down in the crevices of our heart. Neither do I condemn you. 
So each of us, guilty beyond the shadow of a doubt, self-condemned with shame and condemned before God because of his law and because of our trespasses, naked, exposed, and there's no speculation. We're caught in the very act of sin and treason. How often do each of us recognize the proper punishment of treason against the ruling king? How often do you in your mind's eye step your toes at the ledge of the lake of fire and contemplate God's righteous wrath that is commensurate with the countless moments that you have rejected his rule and somehow even worse, rejected his love. Rejecting a ruler is one thing, especially when it's someone as sovereign as the Lord is. Rejecting a lover is another thing, especially when it's someone as beautifully loving as the Lord is. And here we have Jesus, God in the flesh, neither do I condemn you. He's going soft on sin. He's letting it slide. Oh, how the accuser would have a field day in the courtroom of heaven. She broke your law same as I did, and you'll shrug hers off? A judge that won't give justice. How are you any better than the criminals that you pardon? No. The reason Jesus would not condemn her is that he would be condemned for her. Jesus knew what it would cost him to say, neither do I condemn you. The scripture says, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Turn with me just a few books to the right. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. says Colossians 2 13 and 14 and you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands namely eternal death this he set aside nailing it to the cross. So everything you look back on this year or this life with regret, what was wasted, what was said, and more often than not, what was left unsaid, the husband I should have been, addictions you thought you would have kicked by now, spiritual rhythms you thought you'd have established by now, come on. God took all of that record of sin that stood against you and he held it up to his son's hand, his only son, his Isaac, and he drove a spike through it. And the blood ran red and my guilt washed white. White as snow. What can wash away my sin? 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. It is precious to me. I pray it's precious to you. But more importantly, it's precious to the Father. The blood of Jesus is effectual at washing away sin or his Father wouldn't have spilt it. Your debt was not just shrugged off. It wasn't excused and it wasn't evaporated, but the full weight was placed on Jesus Every ounce of condemnation, he drank it down. He turned the cup over. Not a drop comes out on you. And he says, it is finished. Jesus bore the weight of the shame of the darkest things you've ever done. The judge's guilty sentence was carried out in full, in the most gruesome execution so that you can hear the Father this morning confirm in your heart, I know all that you've done, neither do I condemn you. An old hymn says, So let the accuser roar of the sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. My Father knows not one. And in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, Brendan Manning says that this is good news, not for the hallelujah Christian who lives only on the mountaintop and has never visited the valley of desolation, but it's good news for the sorely burdened who are still shifting their heavy suitcase from one hand to the other. Anyone bringing baggage into 2017? For the weak men and women with hereditary faults, For the unsteady disciple whose cheese is falling off his cracker and those who feel that their lives are a grave disappointment to God. For anyone who has grown weary and discouraged along the way. Good news to any of us who didn't end 2016 where we thought we would have at the beginning. A man named Edward Judson said this, It is thought that unconditional grace is unsafe. Men will feel free to go on sinning. On the contrary, unconditional forgiveness is the only rope that is long enough to reach to the bottom of the pit into which we have fallen. It's the only thing that could reach you where you're at right now. Me where I'm at right now is, is, is forgiveness that has no conditions of you're going to get it together this time, right? But now you're at the bottom of this pit and this rope comes down. How silly would it be to stand at, this, at the bottom clutching this rope and say, what an amazing rope. Amazing rope, how sweet this rope. And then you just say, man, it's so amazing. Even if I dug down deeper into this pit, it would just reach longer down to me. Unconditional, no matter how deep I go. This is amazing. No. Bloody your hands, gripping the thing, and get out. Climb out. This year, grip unconditional grace with all your might every day. Because Jesus' final words to this woman were not forgiveness, but holiness. 
neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Be done with this kind of life. Like, are you done yet? How has it been working out for you in 2016 or this whole life? How has it been working out? So grace transforms us, never leaves us where we're at. Our culture loves Jesus who comes along and says, hey, let's stop casting stones. Let's stop judging everybody as a way of kind of flattening out sinful and righteous lifestyles. Whatever works for you. You got to follow your arrow wherever it points. It makes for a catchy song and a crappy worldview. But true grace has teeth. It leaves a mark. It always transforms. How do you know if you've had a genuine experience with the grace of God? You're not the same. You've heard, neither do I condemn you, and go and sin no more. Be done with that kind of life. Grace, when it's experienced, as opposed to just talked about in a gym, is devastating. Nothing can go back to business as usual. Once you've had an experience like this woman has of what forgiveness means, it's devastating. You can't go back to business as usual. You can't stay in the bottom of the pit. And so each of us, in this gym and out, are hoping and intending to make 2017 better. Generally more productive, more in touch with God, more in control of my money, my diet. I'm going to waste less time. I'm going to finally break this addiction. The critical question is why? What's the fuel in our tank this year? Are we going to get our act together to finally feel the smile of God on our lives? Or is 2017 going to be night and day different because you've had a transformative encounter with the mercy of Jesus? Securing for you the smile of the Father, completely unhinged from your ability to earn it and deserve it. I'm, I'm not just blowing smoke saying like, 2017, it's your season, it's your year, things are going to be so great now. I'm not. I'm, I'm telling you 2017 this year can be night and day different. If you have had an, a transformative encounter with the mercy of Jesus, securing for you the smile of God, completely unhinged from your ability to deserve it this year. Okay, which Christian... If we had Bill and Bob, which Christian is going to come closer to walking 2017 in spirit-led victory? The one floored by the mercy of Jesus over the tragic failure he's been living, or the one compensating for all the bad choices, taking it upon himself to turn that new leaf, to try harder, to do better, Who's going to perform better? The Christian focused on his performance or the one who is resting in and transformed by the perfect performance of Jesus? What does it look like 
for you this year to walk in light of a personal encounter with the scandalous grace of Jesus, freeing you from all condemnation and shame. What would the lifestyle look like of someone who has heard from God, I, don't, I know everything you've done, I know everything you've said, and everything you've thought, and I don't condemn you. And they've heard, the debt is paid, now leave your old life behind. What would, what would the next 12 months look like for you if this was a real experience like this woman had? What would this year look like for our church if we were marked by movement fueled by mercy? If this neighborhood could see our church marked by movement fueled by mercy, why do they do what they do? Well, the heartbeat behind everything that we do, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. So from January 1st today, Let's lay aside every weight, every sin that clings so closely, and let's run the race with endurance. Hip, hip, hooray, but let's not reverse the order. Things are going to go terribly wrong if we flip it, and you're going to miss everything if you think that the, the scene played out with the woman saying, Jesus, I'll never do it again. I promise to do better. And then Jesus saying, Okay, then I forgive you. You'll miss everything. No, before Jesus dealt with her future, he first dealt with her past, and it was wiped clean away by his blood. That life-changing moment that she had with Jesus, he stands present and accounted for today to have that moment with you or he wouldn't have spilled the father wouldn't have spilled his son's blood if it wasn't effectual for you right in this chair and so we'll have a moment as let's just take time as we sing this this song to anchor your hopes and your dreams for this new year in a just kind of anchor them and tie them to an experience right this morning even of his mercy where all accusation and shame and self-hatred is done away with, buried in a tomb in the Middle East, never to rise again. He, and allow him to speak to your heart, I know what you've done and I don't condemn you. I condemned my son for you. I took the record of your guilt in his hand, held it out for nails to pierce, cleansing blood to flow. So life really can look different from January 1st today. It's so, it's so, blindly, you know, naive, if I feel like, because for some of you, many of you, you've failed so many resolutions, and, and what that's caused you is to be guarded against hope that God could change you, 
and I don't know what you're living for. If you're so guarded that today could be different from yesterday and that this year could be different from last year, just call it quits. But I have hope that this year could be different for you, not because of your willpower to finally get it all together, not because your willpower is going to be stronger this time around, but because you've heard words of freedom that fuel a devotion. And that devotion is going to carry you farther than your striving ever could. Your striving, I, I even heard a statistic, it'll get you to the third week of February. That's when gym uh, attendance dives and fast food restaurants peak. Um, third week of February. So that's, I'll tell you right now, that's how far your effort and your willpower is going to get you this year. But your devotion out of gratitude to an experience of the mercy of Jesus can carry you through eternity. Everyone here who, who, may be, who might be caught in sexual sin, an addiction of lust, you stand just as guilty as that woman did. And Jesus says, no condemnation. You're free from the chains. Walk away. So as we sing this first verse, this chorus, sit and let Jesus silence every accusing voice. Let him silence your own voice. Let him tell you to shut up until it's just you and him. And don't lead in with a promise to change. Open your heart and listen and receive. Open your hands maybe like this. Close your eyes if you like. Whatever puts you in, this, in a posture and you're ready to listen and receive.